I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. So, do you want the money, or do you want to trade it for what's behind door number three? That's the sort of question that engaged not only the studio audience, but millions of television viewers as well. Between 1963 and 1976, with the original run of TV game show, Let's Make a Deal. And the man behind the dilemma was its creator and host, Monty Hall. Today's viewers are engaged in the Wayne Brady-hosted version of the show, but Monty's original take was huge. To take us back to those days and to help paint a portrait of what Monty was like both in front of and behind the camera, we're turning to Adam Needoff, who is not only a game show expert, but has worked on shows like The Price is Right, Wheel of Fortune, and Double Dare. He's written numerous books on the subject of game shows and is currently writing the authorized biography of Monty Hall. How's your biography going of him? Because that's what you're in the middle of doing, right? Biography is going very well. I'm in the proofreading stages right now. Uh, a 635-page mammoth right now before the photos have even been added. But it's going to be – it's such a great read, if I may say so myself. That's I, great. I really got a lot of support from – and happily, a lot of Monty's friends have ended up living very long lives. So I was able to talk to a lot of people who – still who still have memories of him and his brother is still alive his brother is something like 94 and he lives up in toronto and i spent about two hours on the phone with his brother that's great just collecting stories yeah what uh did you get Um, him i mean before he passed away or you weren't working on it at the time unfortunately not no the way this came about was um a very good friend of mine named bod Bowden uh had grown uh close to the family during the final years of monty's life and then monty died and Bob brought me along to the funeral and introduced me to the family, and he suggested to me after the fact, have you considered writing a book about Monty? And I knew Monty had written his own autobiography in 1973, and Monty at the time admitted that he wasn't happy with the autobiography because uh, it had been edited way, way, way down. He submitted an 800-page manuscript, and it was released as like a 200-page book. Oh, my God. Uh, So Monty wasn't happy with the book, uh, and... His family pointed this out uh, when I was interviewing them. It portrays Monty as a very at a very specific point in his life. If you read Monty's original autobiography, it paints a portrait of a guy who really, really hates hosting Let's Make a Deal because Monty had been hosting the show for about nine years, and he was fighting this losing battle to do other stuff. He had made it known that he wanted to try acting, uh, that he wanted to go into hosting a talk show, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and those opportunities weren't coming. So he talks a lot in the book about frustration, uh, about just hosting Let's Make a Deal and doing nothing else. Right. And you know, one of the things his family told me was that's really not our dad. It was our dad at that specific moment in his life when he was looking at other things to do. But he loved hosting Let's Make a Deal. He was proud of that show. He was happy with what it enabled him to do for charity. And so I – the biography gave uh, writing the new biography really gave me a chance to re-explore his life as a whole and re-examine what he was proud of, what he wanted to do, what fell through. Um, and in fact, one of the funny things that I came upon while working on the book was eventually he did get those chances. He did uh, summer stock after Let's Make a Deal landed, um, and found that he didn't love acting as much as he thought he would. He did right. a made-for-TV movie. It was supposed to be a pilot for uh, an hour weekly dramatic series. And Monty played a general, oddly enough, in this pilot. And he got kind of bored with doing the same thing over and over again, because Monty, who was used to doing, you know, live to tape television or live radio, uh, 
just was not accustomed to doing the same scene again and again and again, which is what you do for uh, TV and film acting. So the bloom came off that rose really quickly, and Monty kind of decided, you know what, actually, I think where I was was a good thing for me. And so he very contentedly posted, let's make a deal for another couple of years after that. Wow. Now, did they let you have access to his original autobiography, the unedited one? Because that would be great to get his thoughts. Lost. I'm sure the family would have been happy to turn it over, but yeah, we couldn't find it. All we could find was this record of Monty saying, you know, I turned in this 800-page draft. It would have been a great thing, but it's gone. But unfortunately, Monty was happy to sit down for interviews with anybody that would have him. So there was a lot of recorded material to go through, uh, and that was a tremendous help to this. So as a game show person, as you are, what was it about Monty that made you say, hey, I want to tell this guy's story? Um, boy, I think Monty, for one thing, uh, he bore the brunt of a lot of criticism during his career because let's make a deal was such a different beast in the world of game shows. And it was easy for a critic to point and scoff at it. Um, you had these people screaming and jumping up and down and they were wearing Halloween costumes, no matter what time of year you were watching the show. And it wasn't a game show where you had to answer a particularly tough question. It wasn't a game show where you had to demonstrate any kind of skill. It was, do you want the box or do you want the curtain? And based on the fact that you chose the curtain instead of a box, you got $5,000 cash or you got a new car and people were just dismayed that, Oh my God, this is, this is a show you're, you're rewarding people for just doing that. Um, and there was the, there was, the alleged greed element where, you know, Monty would offer to buy the box back from you before you open it up. And, you know, I'll give it to you for $500. Oh, 500 is not good enough. I'll give you 600. That's right. not good enough. I'll give you 700. And it was just how much money does it take for Monty to buy the box back from you? So he really bore the brunt of all this criticism. Meanwhile, you could just, if you really sit down and actually watch a show, you can see an affinity that he has for the contestants that he's on stage with. He's really having a lot of fun. Um, the show is just charming. It's not doing any kind of harm to anybody. It's no more greedy than any other game show. And the other thing that he didn't really get a lot of appreciation from critics for, and critics had the loudest voice, uh, because they had their newspaper columns was Monty was using that show as a launch point to do charity work. Uh, being the host of a hit game show gave Monty a platform where he was in demand to host fundraisers, to host telephones. And he did every one that his calendar would literally allow him to do. Uh, even when he took vacations, his, his family kind of joked about what his vacations looked like because, you know, kids were, were going to Hawaii for a week. And they'd go to Hawaii for a week. And the first day of the vacation was dad was going to go to the local ABC affiliate to shoot some promos. And then he was going to go visit a children's hospital as a kind of a gesture of goodwill and write a check for them while he was there. So that's what their vacations always looked like, was it always turned into a philanthropic effort. He just he couldn't help that. Um, and that went back to something that had happened when he was a kid, uh, when he was a teenager, and somebody gave him a break at a time in his life when he really needed a break. And it came with the promise that you have to do this for somebody else someday. And Monty, as, as his daughter put it, uh, Monty metabolically could not say no to something. Monty had to write a check anytime he was asked to write a check for a cause because he had made this promise and he couldn't bring himself to violate it. Wow. 
And did he make yeah. not to get personal about his life, but I guess why not? Uh, he yeah. uh, did he make that kind of money on uh, like something like let's make a deal where he could just say, hey, we're going to Hawaii oh, and yeah. then give away money. Yeah, I mean he was yeah he was making a ton of cash, uh, especially when the show moved to ABC. That was uh, kind of a big shock in uh, 1968. Uh, was the contract negotiations because ABC was the distant, distant third network at the yeah. time. And his contract was coming up at NBC and NBC really did not fight that hard for him because they figured, well, you know, Monty's not going to go to ABC. Uh, so it was, here's the contract renewal. It's the same contract we've also, we've always offered you take it or leave it. And then he went over to ABC, and ABC gave him everything he wanted. He got raises uh, for himself and the staff. Uh, ABC set up a pension program. Uh, in fact, one of the things that I learned from the family was a lot of the people that worked for Stefan Hato's Monty Hall Productions, his production company, a lot of the folks that worked there retired millionaires because Monty wanted to set up a nice retirement package for himself and Stefan, but he didn't want the bosses. He didn't want his employees to find out that, Hey, you know, the bosses set this thing up for themselves, but they left us out. So when he jumped to ABC, he said, okay, if we do this, we've got to set up everybody. Wow. So Monty wanted this really nice retirement package and ABC gave it to him, but it was on the condition that they had to give everybody in the company the same package they were giving Monty. Um, so, Monty got a very, very nice paycheck. There was this nice retirement package at the end of the rainbow. Uh, he was allowed to develop other shows. He did primetime specials. Uh, his wife did film production. So she, uh, so they had that income coming in. Uh, and they invested it smartly. And they also lived frugally. Uh, I don't want to say cheaply, but I mean, his, he grew up poor. Uh, and, you know, there were months during his childhood uh, when the lights were turned off or the water was turned off for a time. And his kids told me, you know, that part never went away. We lived in this very nice house in Beverly Hills. And our dad would complain sometimes because he would look at the portion sizes of dinner and he would say, oh, my God, you made too much food. It's all going to go to waste. Right. Or, you know, don't you dare walk out of a room and leave the light turned on. That was a big rule in the Hall family growing up. So Monty was so accustomed to living poor that even when he had the money, he wasn't spending that much of it. And also one of the things that drove him and one of the prize models that worked with him in the 1980s, Karen LaPierre, who was a wonderful woman and speaks very highly of Monty, said, you know, Monty looked at money in terms of what could be done with it. So that kind of inspired him to hold back as much money as he could for later. Uh, so, you know, Monty and his wife had enough money that they could go to a fine restaurant for every meal of every day. But rather than do that, they cooked at home, and that way they could write a bigger check for Variety Club or whatever other cause. Right. So, yeah. And, and also, the, the you know, you brought up the, fr the frugalness of it. It's funny because, I mean, from what I understand is people who grew up in the Depression, for instance, never got out of the habit yeah. of snatching up, like, sugar packets. Uh, and things oh, yeah. from restaurants because it was just yeah because like, my my great grandparents were always like that they you know they the condiments always came with us from the restaurants and um you know I I talked to the family of another producer uh, Bob Stewart who created Pyramid and they they told me the story of how you know our dad slept with his wallet under the pillow <laughs> because I mean that was that was the era he grew up in and he couldn't shake that from his mind right so. But uh, the origin story for Monty Hall, because I've, I've never gotten around to explaining what this act of kindness was, Monty was 
a had the bad fortune of being a child genius who grew up poor. Monty finished high school at age 14. Wow. Um, but his family could not afford to put him through school. Uh, so Monty was uh, on his hands and knees scrubbing the floors at a shop uh, to make a little money. And a very, very wealthy guy who was close in age to him, uh, he had inherited a large amount of money from his father. And the, a young guy named Max Freed walks in and he sees Monty and he kind of makes his face money and he says, you know, why isn't he in school? And somebody laid out the situation and says he can't afford to go to school. So Max Freed says, come to my office tomorrow and uh, let's talk about this. And so he sat down and made this deal with Monty where he said, you know, I'm going to put you all the way through school and not just wish he paid for everything. He paid for Monty's food for the next few years. He paid for Monty's clothes, paid for everything for Monty to go to college. And he said, you know, you have two conditions here. Number one, you have to maintain an A average. I need to see your report card every quarter. And number two, you have to do this for somebody else someday. And so that was where it came from. Monty ended up going through college on this guy's dime. And because of that, that's kind of what triggered the need to come through for absolutely everybody who needed help. But who was this guy? I mean, just some guy who just did an act of kindness? Max, for, uh, let me pull this up because I, I, I keep forgetting where the money came from. Uh, his father owned some kind of business. And for some reason, that part of the story never stays in my brain. Um, uh, Max Fried was the owner. Uh, he was the owner of a wholesale house. Uh, and his father had established it and made his son president at age 21. And then by age 30, Max had the entire business. Um, but he was known in Canada as kind of a playboy. Um, and, you know, uh, he enjoyed horse racing and he was a man about town. And everyone just saw him as the guy who inherited daddy's money and squandered it. And no, Max, Max was a big believer. And Monty really made a case for this guy. Max Fried was a big believer in not trumpeting charitable donations. And he said, no, Max was donating a ton of money and not announcing it to the world. Which is and the way just, you should donate money endured, anyway, really. Yeah. And yeah. he just, he endured all this criticism for frittering away the, his money and the way he lived his life. And nobody realized that he was doing all this nice stuff for so many people. Right. And Monty found out, he I wasn't even the only one he was putting through college, but he made this deal where he said, I'm going to do this, but you can't tell anyone that I'm giving you the money. Right. And you just have to do it for other people. Wow. So, Amazing. Yeah. Here's the thing about Monty Hall, uh, you know, and this happens to a lot of people I get think get known for something. As far as a lot of people are concerned, Monty Hall starts and stops with let's make a deal. Uh, What sort of was his journey? I mean, to let's make a deal. What was his life like leading up to that? Uh, His journey was actually he was trying to get into med school uh, when he was attending college. And at the time, they ran it on a quota system, and uh, basically, they already had enough Jewish students that oh, year, geez. so Monty did not get into med school. Yeah, um, so Monty never got to attend med school, but in the meantime, he picked up a side job doing radio announcing, and radio announcing, especially in those days in smaller markets where they didn't have a lot of network programs to, uh, to pull from you did a little bit of everything. So he acted in soap operas. He acted, uh, you know, he sang, he did play by play commentary for sports events, which he loved. He loved uh, calling hockey. He used to say he would have called hockey for free his entire life. <laughs> um, 
But he did that, and he made his way from Winnipeg to Toronto. And when he was in Toronto, he asked his boss for a raise. Um, and he was basically told, you know, America and New York are where the money are. So um, he went to New York and uh, pounded the pavement for a while. And this was a great story, too. Motti moved to America and left his family in Canada for a few months just in case things didn't work out. So he was pretty much on his own in New York for a few months, just looking for work and looking for work. And stuff was not happening for him. And so he began doing something really, really odd. He began writing something called the Memo for Monty. And it was the easiest way to describe it was it was the early 1950s version of a blog. He would sit down and he would just type this account of what he had done in the past week while he was looking for work. And then he began mailing it out to all the people that he couldn't get job interviews from. So every single week, all these people in uh, broadcast in New York were getting the memo from Monty, and it was just the life of an unemployed guy that couldn't get a meeting with them. That's fine. Um, so he was doing this basically as kind of an outlet for his own frustrations. He didn't really know if anybody was bothering to read the things. He certainly didn't think anybody was. And then one week, somebody called him up and said, I, I didn't get my memo from Monty this week. Are, are you still writing those? <laughs> he was very surprised that somebody... Somebody was concerned that they didn't get that week's issue, so he was brought in for an interview. Uh, things started coming together from there. He eventually got a job at uh, NBC doing their with their weekend radio show, Monitor. Uh, Monitor was this amazing radio show. It was like the last gasp of old radio. Uh, for 40 hours every weekend, they would do a continuous radio show, and pretty much everybody at NBC got a turn co-hosting Monitor at some point. Um, so he did that for a time. And he sort of fell into game shows. He guest hosted uh, 21 for a summer. I uh, didn't know that it was fixed. He was, as he called it, a patsy. And he said he learned down the road. They would bring him in for show prep, and they would pull the questions out of the safe and show him the questions and then send him out of the office after he'd reviewed all the material. And then they'd bring in the contestants one at a time and open up the same safe and show the, <laughs> show them the, the questions. Right. So, yeah. So he was a total patsy, as, as he described it. Um so from hosting game shows, he began developing ideas. Uh, he got a show on the air called Your First Impression, which was a guessing game where you had to identify mystery celebrities. Um, and eventually that led him to making contact with Stefan Hados because Stefan, Monty did not have that much experience as a network TV producer. Stefan did, and he needed somebody that had a better sense of it than he did. So he brought in Stefan Hadis, and they collaborated on this idea that was basically a collection of lots of little ideas from their old radio shows. Like Monty had done this thing in Canada. He had hosted a radio show, but somebody had the idea. Somebody, some employee at the station had the idea. You know what you ought to do for the last 10 minutes of the show? Like go out into the audience and just ask people for things and give them small prizes if they have it. Like uh, if you have postage stamps in your purse, I'll give you 50 cents for every stamp that you have in your purse. Uh, you know, or, you know, if, if you have a shopping list, I'll give you a dollar for every item on the shopping list. Oh, that sounded like an interesting idea. And Stephen Hayes had an idea like that too. And they combined all of these little ideas that they had done on local smaller shows that they had done in the past. And they worked it into a cohesive format and they called it let's make a deal. Uh, so that was 1963 or so. They just had a bear of a time getting it on the air because they said the funny thing was every network executive who showed it to said the same thing. They said, well, what do you do for episode two? Because it was, do you want the box of the curtain? Okay, now it's, you know, do you want the box of the curtain? Do you want the, and it's, 
And it's like, are people going to watch this every day? And he said, well, it's, it's variations on a theme. We're going to do more of the same every day, which is what a game show is. Right. Um, and finally, NBC took a shot at it, and they put it on, and it just ended up being one of the most successful things ever in game shows. And it became this pop cultural institution and left a huge footprint. <laughs> but was it was it popular right out of the gate? I mean, I because I don't know what the ratings were. I, yeah, pretty yeah. much. It was uh, a big overnight hit. Uh, NBC put it on against Password, uh, the, the word game on CBS. And Password had been uh, it's just a monster for CBS. I think they had done something like uh, 12 different shows in the two o'clock time slot. NBC had done uh, something like 12 different shows in the uh, two o'clock time slot uh, by the time Let's Make a Deal came along. So basically everybody who heard that they were being put on the air against Password thought, oh, we're here until NBC finds an idea that they actually like. But no, uh, it just, it immediately became a hit. It, It took off right away and it was something different and it was something fresh and it was, it's, it just didn't look like anything else in the TV landscape. And Monty had this charm about it. It was, it was intriguing watching this guy who, yeah, he was genuine. Monty was a genuine good guy, but he had that salesman persona where he was, you knew that the gist here was he was trying to talk the contestants into something. Or he was trying to, he was trying to turn the screw and make them second guess the decisions they were making. And so there was intrigue there. And, it was just something that you didn't see on another game show. And I think people were drawn towards that. Um, certainly, uh, Stu Billet, who was a producer uh, for Monty for many years, expressed a pretty good theory. Uh, there, are a lot, there are a lot of reasons that Let's Make a Deal was a hit. But one of the things that Stu Billet zeroed in on was viewers at home like to play along with the show. And they like the idea that they made the right decision when the contestant didn't. So the brilliance of let's make a deal is that it's 30 minutes of doing nothing but making decisions. So for 30 minutes at home, you, the viewer are going, Oh, I would take the, I would take the blue wallet instead of the red wallet. Blue wallet's going to have more money on it. Oh, wait, now he's offering him a choice of the curtain. Oh, well, I would, I would take curtain number one instead of that. Oh, okay. Well, I would do this instead of that one. Well, I, I would pick the can of corn instead of the soda. Right. So it's decisions like that. And either you feel good for the contestants for doing the right thing, or you feel good for yourself because you outsmarted the contestant. Right. So there's constant decisions for 30 minutes. And no matter how the decision turns out, you, the viewer, feel good about how it turns out. And the concept of the show I mean, the prizes would change, of course, and it gets slicker probably as it went on. But the, the basically yeah. the concept was the same from beginning to end. Oh, yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Uh, nothing ever tinkered with and not really no real attempt to reinvent it. Uh, there was an early profile of the show where they said uh, basically what we did, what we have here is 20 core ideas. They had tw- basically 20 individual deals. And the gist of it was just rotating between those 20 deals and changing it just enough each time that you use it, that it doesn't seem the same every time. And I was talking to one of the staffers uh, that worked on the show, his executive in charge of production. And he said, eventually we got to a point where we had 50, but it really was, it was just because we had a new idea. There was never a push to say, okay, we need to do something new. It was just, if you happen to have a new idea, great. Right. Uh, So they eventually got up to about 50 different ideas for deals. And it was just, rotating between those ideas and doing it a little bit differently each time. 
did it peter out or did monty peter out <laughs> i mean in the sense of like did he want to get out of there or did the show itself just kind of start well, dropping eventually as most shows do after a while here's where let's make a deal here's what went wrong and it was the result of a very specific big thing happening at a very specific moment in the game show world let's make a deal was doing fine for uh in 1975 it had been on the air for 12 years at that point everything was great and then CBS got this bright idea to expand the prices right from 30 minutes to one hour. And they announced that uh, from now on, the prices right will be a full hour and the prices right worked wonderfully as a one hour show. Um, well, that kind of led to this, I, I don't want to call it a pissing match, but basically every network had to follow suit and expand their game shows to one hour just to see if any of them worked. So you very briefly had hour long Hollywood squares, hour long wheel of fortune, and ABC did hour-long Let's Make a Deal. And Monty went to the network and said he was very, very against it because he said, we're expanding it for the sake of expanding it. 30 minutes is just right for our shows. And actually what ABC had done was they announced that the show was being expanded to one hour without telling Monty. Monty found out from reading a press release that oh the show was God. going to do hour-long episodes. Right. And they basically had two, day, two weeks until taping to figure out what they were going to do. Now, here's the problem with it. When The Price is Right expanded to one hour, they changed the format of the show. They added the big wheel, and they turned the format into kind of a mini tournament with the six contestants who won their way on stage and whittling it down to two to play the showcase at the end. So the genius thing that The Price is Right did was they altered the format in such a way that The Price is Right now needed to be one hour long. The other game shows just did one hour of more of the same. So hour-long Wheel of Fortune was just an hour of Wheel of Fortune. Which sounds like death. It just sounds like death watching yeah. those shows. Yeah. I mean, it's that's one of the tricky things about game shows. And one of the things that the people in charge of game shows are worried about now is the fact that game shows game shows weren't designed for binge watching. And, you know, you, you just kind of landed on it. Hollywood Squares is a great show for half an hour. But after half an hour, you're ready to move on to something else. Yeah. So that's one of the tricky things in the new era is we have to figure out how to make game shows work for binge watching. But the Price is Right figured out a way to make their show work for one hour. Monty and his staff were given two weeks to figure out what to do with Let's Make a Deal for one hour, and they just weren't going to do deals for one hour. So they did it, and they did hour-long episodes, but there was no change. They just did more deals during the course of an hour. Well, Monty's feeling was viewers kind of saw through that and didn't really see anything special going on. This was just a longer version of the show they already had. And in fact, the ratings for the hour long episodes were lower than the regular half hour. Let's make a deal. So they only did one week of hour long episodes and ABC said, or Monty said, my impression was ABC wanted to punish us for the fact that they, the, the hour long format didn't work. So they moved the show to a noon time slot. And noon at that point was turning into a death slot on the networks because more and more local stations were beginning to do noon newscasts. Right. So airing the network show at noon was being turned into optional programming for the local stations. So like only half the country was able to see Let's Make a Deal at noon. Well, it was off the air by July 1976. Wow. So only seven months after those hour-long episodes, it was gone. So it had this long, healthy 12-year run. And then this one week of episodes went badly. And as a result, they were off the air six, six months later. And the network would sabotage its own show that was a success for all those years just to make a point? You know, it's, I got to tell you, as, as somebody who's now worked behind the scenes of game shows, I can kind of believe that. 
Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I have now worked on two shows that have been canceled for stupid reasons. So. <laughs> All right then. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. <laughs> I've worked on a show. I've worked on a show that was canceled because the because the new president in charge of the network didn't like a show where the contestants had to look at a screen. Oh my god. So good ratings, but that's why we rebooted off the air. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> You know, seriously. Yeah. You know, you mentioned before Monty was trying to expand and do acting and stuff. And of course, in the mid seventies, I have to ask because I wouldn't be a, a an official Odd Couple fan if I didn't ask. Uh, he did two <laughs> episodes of The Odd Couple, uh, and I'm just yeah. wondering if, in the research you've done, if you've picked up any interesting tidbits about that. Not so much about the uh, about the Odd Couple itself. I did find out Monty was actually kind of discriminating about special guest star roles. He was fine with doing uh, The Odd Couple because he was playing the role of Monty Hall, who is the host of Let's Make a Deal. So it had to be him. Uh, one of the things that Monty was picky about was he didn't want a role that basically we just need an actor to do it. I don't know what Monty had in mind, but he didn't want a role where there were 20 other actors waiting in line and any of them play the same role. Right. Um, and the other the other thing he had, and I, I kind of respect this, uh, he didn't want to play the role of the game show host. Sure. Um, he was fine with being, he was fine, fine with playing himself, the host of let's make a deal. But if they needed an actor to play a game show host, he said, don't pick me for that. Right. You know, with, with Monty, I mean, granted now, you know, the show ends and Monty goes on to his life basically. And obviously he, he like you said, he's involved in a lot of charities and things like that. But was yeah. he a happy guy after the show ended? I mean, was his life a good life? Because you know, again, it's it's. I think he was the, very content. If, okay. uh, you know, he was. He had this. Uh, he had a country club that he liked to go to, and he was, from all from all accounts and all sounds of it, he was pretty much the mayor of this country club. Uh, <laughs> people would actually clap when he walked in. Oh, uh, from what I've been it's told, like Norm on Cheers, uh, right? He comes in, everybody says yeah. Norm. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Stayed very, very active, uh, wanted to continue doing charity. Uh, one of the, the things that uh, his brother told me about, which was – this speaks to the kind of guy that Monty was. Uh, he said, I visited Monty in the early 90s. Now, by this point, my brother was 70 years old, and he was he was thumbing through a calendar on his desk, and he looked really concerned. And I, I said, what's wrong? And he, he, he said, you know, look at this. I don't have anything booked for October. And – He's showing him, and he said, you know, Monty had going to this fundraiser in Beverly Hills, then flying off to Portland, Oregon to do this thing, and then flying into Hawaii to go to a children's hospital, and then flying to London to this thing. And he said, you know, there's got to be something that's having a fundraiser in October. Do you know anything that's going on in October where I can appear? <laughs> and it was just – there was just that always that need to do something, and this is the world before Google. that You couldn't research this and figure out what what functions and what causes might need you. So – that really, really bothered Monty was the thought that somebody might need help raising money for charity, and I didn't know about it. Wow. Um, so Monty had all the work he wanted. Um, stayed very, very active. Uh, went out and made new friends. That was the, that was the thing that uh, his his children spoke very highly of was Monty's Monty's willingness to keep going out and meeting new people, even into the eighties. Uh, he and he and uh, his wife would go out. And his kids would ask, well, who are you going out with? And it was they were having a dinner uh, night with this couple that they had just met the week earlier. But they just kept going out and making new friends and making new friends. Uh, and so 
they kept expanding their world and they kept meeting people and they had grandchildren and Monty loved being a grandfather by all accounts uh, from uh, his family. Right. Was very proud of it. Uh, Seder at the Hall House was a very well-known annual event. Uh, they usually had 50 people in the house for Seder every year. Wow. Um, and if Monty would, as they said it, Monty would emcee that as though he was emceeing anything that was on television. Monty was a performer, no matter what kind of function he was at. <laughs> um, and he kept, you know, he kept the let's make a deal brand alive as much as he could. And that's the other, that's the other great thing where money comes from is licensing that stuff. So there were let's make a deal slot machines and the foreign adaptations, of let's make a deal and the let's make a deal board games, and the electronic games, and the DVD games that were coming out you know, in the nineties and the two thousands. So there was just always new money coming in from Monty because of that show. So that it afforded him a very comfortable life and it afforded him the chance to do what he wanted to do was to just keep pushing this money forward and helping other people with it. Um, so Monty was very content with the way his life turned out. Uh, I, I would certainly say that. Okay. And the other thing was my Monty, Monty liked being involved in, just in that, in the world of television, he he loved the fact that, and you can certainly understand this, being in the 70s and still being called in because somebody wants your advice or wants your help. Monty had a role in getting Antiques Roadshow on the air, which I didn't realize. Oh, wow. Um, but Monty, you know, Monty was involved in the production of the pilot and even hosted the pilot for that show and helped them get it on the air in America. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so Monty was still doing that kind of work. and. Uh, and I, he was very, very happy to keep going like that. You know, here we are in 2020 and, and let's make a deal. Like you said, that version of it went off so many years ago in the seventies, mid seventies, you know, what is the legacy? What is the legacy? Do you feel looking back from today's perspective of Monty Hall and let's make a deal? Oh boy. I know what Monty would like his legacy to be. I, I, I'd like to believe. I imagine that Monty would like to be remembered as the guy that raised billions and billions of dollars for charity and donated a slew, uh, ton of money uh, out of his own pocket. Um, I think the legacy of Let's Make a Deal um, is, is the impact that it's had on language. Um, you know, you still hear people kind of intone it as uh, a sarcastic phrase, you know, well, I'll, I'll take I'll take door number three or something like that. Right. Um, so, I mean, when you when you have that kind of impact on language, which some game shows do, you still hear, will the real uh, uh, please stand up or something like that. Right. So uh, it's had that impact on language. It's still, you know, kind of in the the American psyche. It certainly left that image of it. And that's the funny thing is people who have never watched that show a day in their lives know that there's some game show where contestants sit in the audience wearing costumes. Um, so that's just a thing. It's its legacy is that it's one of those rare game shows that becomes an institution. Even if you don't watch let's make a deal, you know exactly what it is. And so he's created something that left that lasting impression uh, on television and on game shows. And I think uh, another part of the legacy is uh, as far as making television and making uh, a game show is concerned. One of the things that Monty proved, and this is kind of an argument that he got into with network executives over and over again. It's in the presentation more than anything else. The size of the prize doesn't matter. The, you know, the format, the president, the, uh, the format does matter. 
but it's not the size of the prize. It's what you do with it. It's how you present it. It's how you build it up. It's, you know, how you interact with that contestant. It's all in presentation. It's, there's a lot of sizzle that has to go with the steak. Hey, let's make a deal. We'll keep bringing you our exclusive look back at Classic TV, and you subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about us, and give us a five-star review. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.